Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm John Palferman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Each month, John and I take a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the Fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And John, today we turn to a topic that's had a long and controversial history, attempting to repair the brain by transplanting either neural tissue derived from aborted fetuses or stem cells into the brain of someone with Parkinson's. Dr. Roger Barker is a professor of neuroscience at the Cambridge Centre for Brain Repair. And we began our conversation by talking about the history of this therapeutic approach. The origins of brain repair for Parkinson's disease or neural grafting goes back to the early 1980s when it was demonstrated in a series of experiments in Sweden that if you put in fetal tissue at the age at which the dopamine cells normally develop, then if you transplanted those into the adult rat brain, they would survive, make connections, release dopamine, and help the animal get better from the deficits which being induced by giving them a sort of form of Parkinson's. So it was on that background in the mid-1980s that uh, Ulla Lindvall, the neurologist in Sweden, decided to try this in patients, and therefore they employed exactly the same techniques as they'd used preclinically in their experimental animal models of Parkinson's disease to see if it worked in patients with Parkinson's disease. And those initial studies, so the first two patients who were grafted, it didn't work. So the idea here was exactly the same. You take the fetal dopamine cells from aborted fetuses, you dissect out the bit of the brain, you turn them into a sort of cell suspension, a sort of thick soup. You then inject them into the brain of the patient with Parkinson's where dopamine normally works, and you hope it will correct the deficit. And in the first two patients, that didn't happen, and that probably related to the fact that not enough cells were put in, enough of the dopamine cells, and the needle they used was really probably not the optimal size to deliver the tissue at the right density in the right way. So subsequent to that, they then modified the technique, and then... They reported on their first two successful transplants, one in particular in 1990, demonstrating that this approach actually worked extremely well and could work extremely well in some patients. Now, the the source of the new dopamine neurons was somewhat controversial because you needed to use multiple fetuses to get enough material. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, many people look for sources of dopamine cells, and of course there are many sources that you could uh, decide upon. But the one which at least preclinically worked best were the developing dopamine cells, as you say, from the midbrain of aborted fetuses. And harvesting those cells, you lose a lot in the process. So you need at least somewhere in the region of greater than three fetuses to have enough dopamine cells to transplant one side of the brain. So it's controversial in so much as you're having to use aborted tissue, so that creates ethical problems. There were logistical problems in that you need to be able to collect at least three fetuses, identify the midbrain, dissect it out, and you can't store the tissue indefinitely. So you have to be able to collect that tissue over a relatively short period of time, typically in a less than four days. Now, in the 1990s, quite a few of these operations were done. How did they work out, Roger? Was it a kind of a mixed bag? So I think in the open-label studies, which were mainly taken through Sweden through the 1990s and were also adopted by a number of centres in America, most notably, as well as Paris and Canada, the results were very mixed, really. I mean, some patients did extremely well, by which I mean, you know, people 20 years post-transplantation, as they are now, would be essentially off all anti-Parkinsonian medication, look pretty normal, and have normal dopamine levels on their scans. 
other patients had less dramatic responses, you know, sort of modest improvement, and some patients didn't improve at all. So during the 90s, when all of this was sort of developing, especially the first half of the 90s, there was a sort of sense that this had great potential. But it was a little unclear exactly why some patients did really well and others didn't. So trying to understand that was clearly going to be important if this technique was ever to be moved on into something that you could offer patients on a more routine basis. Now, one criticism was that these were open-label trials. They hadn't allowed for a placebo effect. Why might a placebo effect be important in a surgical process like this? Yes, I mean, I mean, I think there are two aspects to any trial when you do any intervention. One is, of course, what the patient thinks has happened, and that's the sort of true placebo effect, if you like. And the second is the investigator bias, what the investigator thinks you've actually done as the patient in response to that therapy. And so I think in these rather high-profile... Uh, invasive approaches, there's a lot of expectation that something will happen. And so I think there was a sort of realisation that the placebo effect and the investigative bias may be actually much greater in these type of trials as a result of that. Having said all that, you know, I think I think sometimes it's slightly overstated really because uh, essentially if this procedure really works, then you will notice it over years because these type of therapies are biological therapies you're putting cells in. Whereas most placebo investigator bias effects, you would expect them to have a fairly immediate benefit to the patient. You would see it in their scores, and you didn't. You saw in these open-label studies that people slowly improved. And indeed, the long-term follow-up of these patients has shown that there is efficacy with these transplants, which could not really be explained by any placebo effect. So whilst there is an expectation of such, uh, you know, such a, an outcome, I personally have always felt that that has been slightly overemphasized in these trials. Roger Barker, one of the things that I think was obviously had an impact on the development of this field is what happened in the United States in the early 2000s when there were a couple of double-blind placebo-controlled surgeries that took place. And some of them rather famously resulted in some patients having uncontrollable dyskinesia. And when that was reported on and got widespread attention, it seemed to really bring a halt uh, to this idea in many ways, along with, of course, the ongoing controversy over the source of the material of coming from aborted fetal tissue. What was your response when you saw what happened in the States with those some patients having those uncontrollable dyskinesia, which were not undoable? Did you think at the time that that would pretty much bring the field to a stop? I think it was it clearly needed addressing and it needed to be understood and it needed to be factored in if you were going to move this therapy forward. I would say that even prior to those trials being done, the decision to go to double-blind placebo-controlled trials, I think, was premature. I think when you haven't optimised the therapy and you know what you're doing, then it's dangerous to go to what you see to be a definitive trial ahead of reaching that goal. So I think there were anxieties with the trials ahead of them actually taking place because of the fact people were going to put so much weight on the results when we didn't know quite how to do this approach properly and optimally. So that's the first thing. Secondly, the trials both showed graft-induced dyskinesias and they were uh, an anxiety. Of course, both trials used entirely different techniques. They used a different surgical approach. They used a different amount of tissue. They used different levels of immunotherapy. They used different endpoints. So the trials themselves were rather hard to compare. Having said that, there were clearly 
graft-induced dyskinesias in some patients, although in only a relatively few were they actually severe enough to merit further intervention, and that further intervention was deep brain stimulation, which often actually helped the patients. It might not get rid of them, but it helped. Now, the question is, well, why did they arise? And that in some way leads back to what I was saying earlier about how the trials were different. The fact that both of them had the dyskinesias meant there had to be something intrinsic to the transplant of the tissue itself that was doing it. But certainly in the first trial, there were a lot of concerns about the fact that the tissue was grafted in such a way that there was not an even distribution of dopamine cells across the grafted area. And in the second trial, there were questions about whether, in fact, there were 5-HT uh, neurons in the transplant, which are true in all of the transplants, which were driving those problems. So whilst they were something that, that caused the field to uh, reflect on itself as to why they'd developed, in some ways, I think the emphasis placed on the graft-induced dyskinesias as a reason to stop the transplant, I think, got slightly muddled with the idea that this was not a therapy that people wanted to support. And so there was a slight bias in sort of overemphasizing what these side effects actually meant. Because, of course, all new therapies have side effects. So deep brain stimulation, which was the one people always compared it with, uh, I mean, people with deep brain stimulation have killed themselves. I mean, and that is a side effect of the DBS. L-DOPA gives everyone dyskinesias. So knowing what the side effects are doesn't actually stop you using the therapy. You just have to understand why they develop and then try and move on and see if you can actually ameliorate them. And if you can't, and they are significant, then you haven't got a therapy. It sounds like in some ways you're saying that, that the problems were at least in part, based on the fact that the technique hadn't been perfected yet, and so the results were given great weight when, in fact, it may have been because the technique wasn't perfected yet as opposed to the broader idea, and that it also served then to support the more uh, political or ethical concern that many had raised, perhaps particularly in the States, over the, the source of, of the material itself. All that said, I mean, I want to also come back to one other thing you raised earlier with John about why some people might do better than others and ask if that was also perhaps in play, which was understanding who was a best candidate for this sort of procedure. Had that also not been worked out, or has it still not been worked out, about who is the best available person for this procedure? Well, I would agree with all of the points you, you raised, really. I think, you know, you have to take the results in the context of the background in which the country finds itself, if you like. And I think it's not just that we didn't know how to optimally deliver the cells or do the transplant. I don't think we knew how to do trials with these type of agents because, of course, these are biological agents. They're not tablets, so it will take several years to see effects. So I think some of the, the ways the trial were designed was not optimal. And I think, as you say, the choice of patient, I think, was not given much thought at all, really, in the sense that I think in the 1990s, the prevalent view was that Parkinson's disease was a movement disorder. There was one type of disease. Age wasn't that big a factor. And therefore, it was a sort of therapy for all comers rather than actually a therapy which probably only is useful in a minority of people in much the same way as deep brain stimulation. Let's jump forward into the current state of, of this technique and, and learn more about where we are now. Um, tell us something about what's being done in Europe today. And I'm also curious about why fetal tissue is still being used when there are now other options, whether that's embryonic stem cells or, or the human-induced pluripotent stem cells as, as options. Yeah. So when 
I think when these trials came out in the early part of this century, you know, as we've said, it, people reflected on it. And so the European view was that the results were in some ways not unexpected, given understanding of how to optimally do these techniques and to deliver these type of trials with these type of cells. So we set about trying to analyze the data as best we could to see if we could optimally work out how to take that therapy forward. And as a result of that, we were fortunate enough to be funded by the European Union to undertake a new trial of human fetal dopamine cells in people with Parkinson's disease. And we felt, having looked at the data, we could be better at selecting the patients, we could be better at selecting when in the disease course, better at dissecting the tissue and delivering the tissue and supporting it thereafter with immunotherapy, and also deciding on a better trial design. So that is how Transura and the fetal transplant trial came about. And the reason why we elected to use fetal tissue as opposed to stem cells is in 2009 and 2010 when this grant started, there was clearly uh, an expectation we would move towards stem cells, but there were no stem cells available of a quality and of a fidelity that would allow you to go to a clinical trial. And we also felt that some of the problems which dogged the fetal transplant field needed to be resolved in order to give you a better grounding, a better basis by which to move on to the next generation of cell-based therapies, which would be stem cell derived. So that is why Transuro set itself up, and that is why we use fetal tissue, but it was never meant to be a trial to show that this tissue works and therefore would be a useful therapy for Parkinson's disease in the future because of all of the problems we've discussed around the ethics and the availability. But it was meant to be the stepping stone and is the stepping stone into the next generation of cell-based therapies for Parkinson's which will be stem cell-based. Now, in Europe, that is very much focused around human embryonic stem cells uh, rather than uh, uh, human-induced pluripotent stem cells. And the reason for that is that the human ES cells, people feel more comfortable with them because they've been around for longer, so we understand their behavior better. In 2011 and 2012, there were two papers published by the Studer Group in New York and the Palmer Group in Lund showing that you could make what looked like essentially authentic midbrain dopamine cells uh, in a way that had not been demonstrated before, which meant you could take human embryonic stem cells and turn them into the dopamine cells you wanted. And over the last three years, it's clear that those protocols are reproducible and that when you use them in preclinical experimental animal models, there are no tumor formation. So the current situation in Europe is that whilst we will be completing the fetal dopamine transplant trial, that has simply allowed us to better understand how to set up these trials, the best patients, the best way to deliver the cells, to optimize how to do these type of uh, experimental uh, therapeutic trials whilst preparing ourselves to move forward to the stem cell-based uh, dopamine cells, which we would expect to file for a clinical trial at some point in uh, two or three years' time. John. Now, Roger, when this grafting surgery started, researchers had a conception of Parkinson's disease as mainly a dopamine-based movement disorder. That's changed dramatically now. So with all the systemic vision of of Parkinson and all the non-motor symptoms, what are the limitations of this approach, even if it does work? So you're absolutely right. I mean, this therapy is designed to do nothing more than put dopamine back in the brain in a more efficient way. So that will improve all the dopaminergic aspects of Parkinson's disease. 
And the advantage of that is obviously, and the other, the other reason why this will be a better therapy than oral dopamine therapy is that, of course, the dopamine will be released physiologically from nerve cells and it will only be released where dopamine is needed. So many of the side effects from dopaminergic medication will be avoided, some of which are to do with cognition and behavioural changes. So although there are non-motor features of Parkinson's driven by the medication, this will be avoided by this therapy. Now, having said all that, of course, there are, as you say, lots of non-motor symptoms and non-dopamine problems. Some of the non-motor features do have a dopaminergic basis at some level. So, for example, some of the problems people have with cognition are related to changes in dopamine systems. Some of the problems with sleepiness and fatigue and tiredness in the day relate to poor sleep. Poor sleep relates to poor motor control. So that would be improved by transplants of this nature. But it will not cure Parkinson's disease and it won't deal with non-motor features that lie outside of the dopamine domain. Having said that, as someone who treats lots of people with Parkinson's disease, when you put people on dopaminergic medication, especially in the early stages of disease, when it works, it works fantastically well and people often go back to near normality. So whilst I don't underplay the non-motor, non-dopamine aspects of it, I think the benefits of putting dopamine back in the brain in Parkinson's disease is still substantial and significant, and in many patients it's transformative uh, if you get the dose right. Now, w one clarification, the area where the damage is done in most Parkinson patients is the substantia nigra, but for technical reasons you, you're not putting the new cells in that region, you're putting them in another region of the brain. Can you just explain that to the listeners? Yeah, so you have to put the dopamine cells where dopamine normally works because if you put them back in the nigra where the cells are lost, they don't seem to have the capacity to form the connections which are necessary for them to actually work where dopamine normally works further up in the brain in a thing called the putamen. But by putting the cells in the, in the area where dopamine works in the putamen, they innovate that area and release dopamine. And we know that from the fetal transplant trials and imaging that they not only release dopamine, but they release dopamine in a normal fashion. And dopamine drugs, that's generally speaking where they work, they work in that area of the brain. So if we could get the dopamine cells to grow better up into the putamen from the nigra where the cells originally lost, that may be useful. But having said that, they work perfectly well when they're put into the putamen. And so there's no reason not to carry on using that strategy. Now, Roger, we've heard a lot in the news about a new ultra-precise means of editing DNA, the CRISPR technique. Does this have a role in this kind of research going forward? I think the only place where you could see this having a role... I'm, role is obviously in people who have particular genetic forms of Parkinson's disease. And if you're thinking about cells, then the obvious possibility would be that if you wanted to use inducible pluripotent stem cells from the patient themselves with a genetic form of Parkinson's disease, this may be useful. So this is the technique where you say, I've got Parkinson's disease. I take a bit of your skin or blood or whatever. I reprogram them into IPS cells. I turn them into dopamine cells and I put them back into the brain. Autologous transplantation. Now, obviously, if you have a genetic form of Parkinson's, it's not ideal to put back into the brain dopamine cells derived from your skin, which contain that genetic defect which gave you Parkinson's disease in the first place. So you could use these new CRISPR-Cas-based technologies to actually excise out the abnormal gene which is causing the Parkinson's disease and would make your transplanted cells more likely to get it and put them in the brain and thereby use this technology in that way. My own view is that that type of personalised medicine where everyone is their own donor is highly unlikely to become a therapeutic option in the future because 
the cost of producing cell lines from individual patients which are only suitable for that patient are prohibitively uh, expensive. And if you go down this gene editing technique, the regulation that will come with that will also make this prohibitively difficult to do. Interesting. Dave, do you want to wrap up? Yeah, just two more quick thoughts, uh, Dr. Barker. One is on this question of where we sort of focus our research uh, dollars, as you were describing, this technique, if it works well, will solve a major problem in, in Parkinson's disease, hopefully, but not be an underlying uh, cure because we now know that the disease involves so much more. And so much of the focus in the research world these days seems to be oriented towards trying to get at that underlying pathology, figuring out a way to stop the buildup of the sticky protein alpha-synuclein that seems to play such a central role in that underlying pathology. So I'm just curious, as someone who has focused so much of their career in this one area, how you would defend, I guess, the idea of focusing on this area of, of stem cell transplants when it seems like in the end, if we're really trying to go all the way and find a cure, uh, that that's not necessarily the route in. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I personally think these techniques are not mutually exclusive. So my view would be that if you can get a, a dopamine cell-based therapy to work, it would transform the life of many people with Parkinson's disease. So the ultimate goal would be you pitch up in clinic, you've got early Parkinson's disease, I put the dopamine cells back, you get physiological release of dopamine, you don't need to take any drugs. So 10, 15 years, you have fantastic motor control without any problems. Now, uh, after that, things may start to unravel if you get problems in non-dopaminergic systems as they become more prominent. But if you now have other therapies which get to the core of the disease, then there's no reason to believe you couldn't put the cells in, given whatever this other therapy is, whether it's immunotherapy or vaccines, and actually treat the whole condition. At the end of the day, I think finding a cure and getting to the core of the pathology and the pathogenic pathways is clearly the best thing to do for any disease. I mean, we're dealing with symptoms and, and downstream effects. The reality is, though, actually managing to do that is going to be extremely difficult because obviously getting a therapy that can target all the pathology, deal with the pathology uh, in a curative way is going to be, uh, I think, difficult. And secondly, if you take that approach, then obviously you're going to have to catch people before they really develop the condition in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so that you could always argue that reparative strategies will always be necessary unless you can pick people up before they ever develop the condition. And depending what that therapy is, that may or may not be possible. And lastly then, when might that reparative strategy, as, as you refer to it as, be available? Bring us up to date on the clinical trial uh, status of, of where you are and when people might hope that this, this strategy might indeed be available to, uh, to the patient population. Well, I think if you go down the most optimistic route, then I would imagine that the first in-human ES-derived transplant trials will be put in place in about 2018-19. Now, if they work, that will take us to 2021, 2022, and then there will be a bigger trial which will probably be double-blind placebo because people want to see that, and that will then have another two- or three-year endpoint. So I would think 10 years from now, we will be in a fairly strong position to know whether this is a therapy which ultimately uh, has legs and could be used as a sort of more mainline therapy in Parkinson's disease. Now, for that to then move from that stage into a mainline therapy, bigger trials will need to be done, and someone will need to invest in the therapy. 
So ultimately, whilst the academic teams can push therapies so far, it will ultimately need investment from pharma or, or some company to make this into a therapy which is likely to go the whole way to clinic. And then, of course, the only problem that that brings, well, it brings several problems, but one of the major problems, which always slightly troubles my mind, is, you know, ultimately, will that therapy then price itself out of the market? So there's always this anxiety. You develop a therapy, works fantastically well, goes all the way to the clinic. Some company buys it, says it costs you a quarter of a million dollars to have that therapy, and no one wants to pay for it, so we actually don't take it to clinic. But that's the sort of timelines I'm thinking about, that in 10 to 15 years' time, this therapy will either be in the clinic or would have been to not deemed not to be uh, a major competitive therapy uh, and have uh, been uh, jettisoned. And despite that kind of long and winding road that still lies ahead, uh, you must in the end be hopeful, otherwise you wouldn't have invested so much of your own energy and, and expertise into this field. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I do, because I think when you see people with Parkinson's disease and you see the response to dopamine drugs and you see in, in patients, I mean, I've just done a clinical morning, the number of patients you can keep going for many, many years very successfully on dopamine drugs, I have no doubt that if we can actually deliver consistently, you know, the right number of the right type of dopamine cells, it will transform a proportion of people with Parkinson's disease and it will be something that people will want. That was Dr. Roger Barker. And Dave, this is a really epic story in science where scientists sent out to replace dead neurons with new ones. And it led to sort of some great hopes and great disappointments. But it's a story which, as Roger told us, still has, has some mileage left in it and may play a, a useful role going forward in Parkinson's disease, maybe a more circumscribed role than was once dreamed of. I think that's right, John. And I, I found myself, as we talked with Roger Barker, becoming more intrigued once again with this therapy. In some ways, I, I think I'd sort of set it aside as something that either was too problematic, whether that was for ethical reasons or because the results themselves have, have been mixed, or because, as we've now learned, this is a disease that has m more to fix than just fixing the dopamine supply. But he makes a persuasive case, I think, for how effective this could could be. And while it may not be the be-all and end-all, if, as he suggests, you could figure out a way to make this work, that it could provide really lasting relief for such a very long time. And I think many of us would say, okay, I'm, I'm good with that. I think that's right. Rather than having to take tablets every day to have brain cells which were giving physiological doses of dopamine when required would be a massive improvement to life, even if it didn't solve all the non-motor problems as well. And I think we can all feel fortunate that there are smart people like Roger Barker um, continuing to pursue this avenue of research. That's all for this edition of the Portland Countdown. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.